Friday and welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Athey, joined by Jessica Burbank. Jessica, I hope you've been having a great week so far. Yeah, so far so good, but things get better every time we do Rising Friday together. I agree. We've got a pretty amazing show for you today. Jess, why don't you take it away? Well, Amber, it's been uh, revealed through FOIA requests that President Joe Biden allegedly used the fake name Robert L. Peters when emailing his son's business associates, including using it to schedule secret calls with the president of Ukraine at the time. House Committee on Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer has called on the National Archives and Records Administration to provide records related to then Vice President Biden's official duties that might have overlapped with his son's activities in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Democrat Representative Dan Goldman had this to say about Hunter Biden business associate and friend Devin Archer on CNN last night. Let's watch. And in fact, what we do know is that the only official action the president took related to Hunter Biden's business interests was detrimental to Hunter Biden's company business interest. It was detrimental to Burisma, as Devin Archer, this new star witness for the Republicans, said because the uh, Burisma had the corrupt prosecutor general quote, and I quote the witness, under control, and that that was a good thing for that prosecutor general to be uh, in office, and yet Joe Biden urged Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, to fire that prosecutor general. That's the only connection that President Biden had with any of Hunter's business dealings. Journalist Glenn Greenwald reacted to Goldman's characterization of Archer, tweeting, the reason Representative Dan Goldman is the new hero of American liberals isn't just that he's the heir to the billionaire Levi Strauss fortune. They worship those with unearned wealth, nor that he was on the Mueller team, but that he's willing as Adam Schiff, or as willing as Adam Schiff, rather, to blatantly lie. So bold statement there from uh, Glenn Greenwald. I think his characterization of liberals is quite a funny one. Um, but yeah, shocking revelation. It seems that this reporting is just coming from James Comer, that Robert L. Peters was the alias the vice president was using, uh, but that the House Oversight Committee has some information on it. We haven't heard from Democrats about this. The Daily Mail obtained a letter with Joe Biden using this alias, and they've asked for more documentation and unredacted letters to really prove that Joe Biden was potentially colluding with Burisma, doing business with his son, uh, and using this alias. But it doesn't seem that we have concrete evidence yet. They haven't released the letters, but this is coming from Comer and the Oversight Committee. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear based on just the context of the emails that they've released so far that this pseudonym couldn't belong to anybody else. I mean, we have this email between uh, Robert L. Peters, as he's called, and a uh, staffer for the vice president's office. So they're communicating um, through this weird back channel. And the only person that's copied on the email besides those two is coincidentally Hunter Biden. And in this email, they discuss this meeting that they're planning to have with the then president of Ukraine. And we know that Biden, as vice president at the time, was involved in Ukrainian matters and that he had bragged about his ability to get Viktor Shokin, the prosecutor at the time who was looking into Burisma, fired. And this is not the only pseudonym that Joe Biden is accused of using. There's another one that is Peter Henderson. And there have been several emails between this so-called Peter Henderson and Hunter Biden, where he does sign the emails 
love dad. Um, so um, it seems like they've been using all kinds of code names for Joe Biden throughout the past 10, 20 years in order to try to have some level of, of deniability um, in regards to Joe Biden's connection to Hunter Biden's business dealings. And then there's another thread of this that makes it even more, I think, believable that these pseudonyms did in fact belong to Joe Biden, which is that Hunter Biden, according to the release of his laptop, had his father saved in his phone as Pedo Peter, which is disturbing on multiple levels. Obviously, I would love to know um, why he is calling his dad a pedo, whether that has anything to do with the revelations from Ashley Biden's diary about the weird showers that they had together. Um, but in these texts where he has mom and pedo, pedo Peter listed together, um, it's very clear, again, that Joe Biden is the one behind these text messages. So we have three different pseudonyms that are apparently being used to cover up Joe Biden's involvement. We also know that Hunter Biden has previously referred to him as the big guy and that they need to save 10 percent for him out of their business deals. Um, so I just think the, the evidence is overwhelming at this point, that they were clearly trying to cover up for Joe Biden by avoiding using his name so that these documents wouldn't be able to be found through a normal FOIA request. Yeah, I think pedo Peter being your contact in your son's phone is shocking. But, you know, I went to graduate school at, at Brown and at these Ivy League schools, there's a lot of rumors about former presidents and people who have served in the highest office and in the executive branch, people who have been vice president, secretary of states, and their kids and grandkids go to these schools. And there's a lot of rumors about Joe Biden's family and that family friends, when they go over to the Biden house for dinner and functions, uh, that the young women are not allowed around Joe Biden or alone in a room with him. That tells me everything I need to know about who Joe Biden is. If your family friends aren't allowing the young girls of the family to be alone in a room with you, tells me a lot about Joe Biden's character. But I think what's at stake here is really trying to, to nail down some evidence that directly puts Joe Biden in a position where he's trying to accumulate more wealth for himself or his family, and that we have evidence of that in the emails. Using the pseudonyms got in the way of them initially getting this evidence via FOIA. Now, I think they need to look into were there other identities used and other accounts used in these financial transactions? I think they really need that to nail this down. Makes sense that Joe Biden, you know, communicating under another name is what initially got in the way of those Freedom of Information Act requests to get those records. But now that they have some pseudonyms that they're confident they can link to Joe Biden, this opens up a lot of room for them to investigate, okay, were there other identities used for these financial transactions? So I think that needs to be the next, next step in investigating. But I also think we do need some more evidence just that this pseudonym was definitely Joe Biden's. Yeah, I agree that the next step is definitely to look in those financial uh, transactions and see if any of these names were indeed used on the accounts in order to hide the fact that these payments were potentially going to Joe Biden. I want to go back for a moment as well to uh, Representative Dan Goldman's interview on CNN, because he did, in fact, lie about the nature of Devin Archer's testimony. It's actually not the first time that he's done that. So what he said in that interview was the claim that Devin Archer asserted that firing Shokin didn't uh, help Burisma at all because Burisma had Shokin, quote, under control and that he wasn't actually investigating the company. But this is a complete 
uh, misinterpretation, perhaps deliberately, of what Devin Archer actually said in his testimony. If you look at the full transcript, we see that Devin Archer was explaining that the narrative that was spun to him by DC consultants was that Burisma had Shokin under control. And of course, they have an interest in spinning that narrative to try to uh, downplay Biden's culpability in helping Burisma get out of potential prosecution from Victor Shokin. Um, Devin Archer never says that he believed that narrative or that he found it compelling, only that that's what the D.C. Uh, suits were trying to spin. Now, the other time that Dan Goldman misrepresented Devin Archer's testimony was actually before the transcript came out. He was all over cable news talking about how all that Devin Archer testified to was that Joe Biden was there to give the, quote, illusion of access, that Hunter Biden was going to give the illusion that he had this direct line to his father. Well, it turns out the illusion of access, quote, was one that was made up by Dan Goldman. It was never said by Devin Archer. It was only brought into the transcript because Dan Goldman used it in a question to Devin Archer. And Devin Archer made very clear in his full testimony that given Joe Biden was on at least 20 phone calls with Hunter Biden's business associates, and now we have this email from Robert L. Peters scheduling a call with the president of Ukraine, it was obviously more than just an illusion of access. The access existed. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, all of the evidence that we have so far points to the fact that whatever it is, if it's the illusion of access or it's actual access, that the Biden family used their influence during the time he was in office to accumulate more wealth. And I think that becomes clear when you just look at the compensation that Hunter Biden had when he was on the board of Burisma, that it went from $83,000 a month to half of that just two months after Joe Biden wasn't in office anymore. That tells you everything you need to know about those who are of the most influential families in the United States will be compensated greatly by multinational corporations, not just for directly influencing foreign policy relations and, you know, trying to nudge Ukraine to get Viktor Shokin out of office because he was prosecuting Burisma, which, by the way, that narrative in D.C. that Burisma had Viktor Shokin under control could just very well be the result of them believing having Hunter Biden on the board would give them, you know, control over the prosecutors in Ukraine and Viktor Shokin's influence over what was going on in the company. And so I think all of the evidence that points to corruption uh, among the Biden family and Burisma is there. Are we going to be able to get those financial records with Joe Biden by name or an alias that is concretely you know, linked to Joe Biden as being him the one sending the emails or executing the financial tra transactions or asking for the money from Burisma? Maybe, maybe not. But I think that there's enough there from the oversight committee that it's time for them to start drafting legislation so this doesn't happen again. To me, it doesn't really matter if we nail the Bidens or not in this case, so long as going forward, they write legislation to prevent this from happening again. And I think they've kind of opened a can of worms here because I think there are a lot of people in DC and in Congress that are either friends with Comer and the executives on the House Oversight Committee. They are friends with people that have really pushed for this investigation of Hunter Biden that are up to very similar things when it comes to making deals with lobbyists, making deals with the executives of multinational corporations and using their influence to get a little bit more money in exchange for passing policy or enacting foreign policies. 
that result in them getting compensated a little bit more, doing these kinds of, of favors. And it's going to be really tough to write legislation that's, you know, anti-corruption legislation that can prevent this in the future. But I think they have a lot of friends in high places that wouldn't like for them to do that. Yeah, legislation would be well and good, but I think it would be a tragedy to not hold the Biden family accountable for this if they are able to get that concrete evidence then Joe Biden should be removed from office, especially considering he's sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine every few months. I mean, what impact did his previous tenure as vice president and his son's involvement in Ukraine have potentially on now using tons of taxpayer money to help support their war efforts? Um, and unfortunately, the Oversight Committee seems to be the only people taking this investigation seriously. This special counsel appointment of David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, um, is clearly an attempt to continue to slow walk the investigation and allow the statute of limitations to run out on Hunter Biden's financial crimes. Um, so we're pretty reliant right now on Congress to hopefully do their job and hold these people accountable. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Supporters of former President Donald Trump have allegedly published the purported names and addresses of the grand jurors in Georgia's case against Trump and his co-conspirators for attempting to overthrow the 2020 election on a fringe website. This, according to NBC News. Nonpartisan research group Advanced Democracy first found the leak. Per the outlet, DA Fonnie Willis, who handed Trump the fourth and latest indictment, has also been the target of racial threats for which additional security has been put in place. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office acknowledged knowing about the personal information being released on platforms, telling NBC News that they are treating this incident seriously and are working with law enforcement to respond to credible threats. So this is a, a shocking. We have Donald Trump saying, you know, because of my public presence, this is going to influence the trial. It's going to be really difficult for me to get a fair trial for all of these indictments. But I think also uh, his base of supporters can influence the, the process of justice, just having a fair trial, having a reasonable trial, having a, a, a jury that feels safe. Uh, you know, making a decision on the trial. The fact that the DA's office is getting these threats suggests that those same threats could then uh, be put on the prosecutor, uh, that the prosecutor's team that's working on the case, the jury on the case. And so I think uh, Donald Trump has really played the victim here in saying that uh, because of his public presence, the legal process is going to be influenced in a direction that leads to an unfavorable result for him. I think likewise, his public presence is resulting uh, in a lot of stress for the prosecutors on the case and everyone involved in the legal process. They definitely should not have released the names of these jurors. They deserve their privacy. Um, and I think it's unfortunately an all too common trend in our modern justice system that when political actors get involved, these things quickly become public uh, nature in, in the attempts to intimidate potentially jurors, judges, and prosecutors. I mean, just recently there was a case involving Andy No and the attacks on him uh, from Antifa. He was physically attacked and also threatened multiple times by Antifa. And that case was a disaster because the lawyer who was representing the Antifa members was also a member of Antifa. And there were several um, Antifa members who would stand outside of the courthouse and threaten the jurors um, and basically try to intimidate them into returning a not guilty verdict. Um, so this is unfortunately happening across the board, and I don't know how we return 
to a place where jurors can have their information remain private and be free from attempts to intimidate, um, given how public these justice uh, processes have become. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It extends to the political process as well. I mean, you're kind of opening yourself up to a little bit more of public scrutiny by working on a political campaign. But I remember on the Bernie 2020 campaign, there were organizers who were knocking doors and making calls because they wanted Bernie Sanders to become president. It's a normal part of our democratic process that if you like a candidate to talk to your neighbors and your friends about that candidate, to knock doors, make phone calls. But there were a lot of organizers that became the target of Project Veritas, you know, secretly recording them, then posting videos of what they were saying about their political views, and then posting their address online and people who have political views in the opposite direction, then threatening them to come and find them, come to their house, threatening their families. And there comes a point when we have to realize that uh, the battle of ideas is not won by attacking individuals, that you can make some individuals, whether it's the grand jury in this case that decided Trump should be indicted, or whether it's you know just people who believe things that are the opposite of your opinions politically, that by removing certain individuals, by threatening certain individuals, you're not really doing much to further your opinions in the battle of ideas because there are hundreds of thousands of people who might feel the same exact way as, as they did. And if you were on the jury with the evidence presented and the instruction you had from the judge, you might actually arrive at the same conclusion. You weren't a part of the jury for that trial. So to, to threaten individuals jeopardizes our democratic process and our justice process, both of which need a ton of work. But threatening individuals, I just don't think is the way to get an agenda passed, no matter how much you believe in it. Yeah, I'm reminded of the protests that took place after the Dobbs decision was leaked to Politico. Um, I mean, we had individuals riding essentially outside of Supreme Court justices' homes for weeks. Attorney General Merrick Garland didn't do anything about it, even though it's illegal to try to intimidate a Supreme Court justice. And it led to the point where one individual traveled all the way across the country in the hopes of trying to assassinate Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Now, on the Georgia case, President Trump canceled a much-anticipated press conference planned for next week, during which he was supposed to reveal evidence that would clear him and his co-conspirators of any wrongdoing. He took to his platform uh, social, his social platform last night, Truth Social, writing, quote, rather than releasing the report on the rigged and stolen Georgia 2020 presidential election on Monday, my lawyers would prefer putting this, I believe, irrefutable and overwhelming evidence of election fraud and irregularities in formal legal filings as we fight to dismiss the disgraceful indictment. He further exclaimed, therefore, the news conference is no longer necessary. So interesting moves from the Trump team. Uh, I don't know if posting to Truth Social is really going to influence the narrative that much because his base is already on his side. Uh, but Trump making this statement that we have evidence of fraud in Georgia, I think is one that he might eventually have to answer for in court as well. He said multiple times in speeches, you know, I, I do believe that the election was stolen. I did believe it at the time. But then there are messages where he says, you know, find the votes and that he knows he lost. So I think these, you know, contradicting statements, some made in public, some made in private, are going to come around to hurt him when they're released uh, or they're entered into court as evidence and released publicly thanks to these trials.
I definitely suspect his lawyers told him to hold off on releasing any evidence publicly and saving it for the courtroom, which I think is a wise decision when you're under an indictment like this. And I think the lawyers have a, a good case for defending Trump here. I mean, basically what this boils down to is whether or not Trump was participating in protected First Amendment activity. And the Georgia indictment is, first of all, absurd to charge him under RICO, which is usually reserved for basically the worst um, the worst drug cartels and uh, criminal organizations that um, that operate internationally. I mean, the idea that uh, trying to make a public case about voter fraud should be charged under that, I think, is pretty ridiculous. Um, but there's a, an article from Andy McCarthy in The Messenger that I think really breaks down the case quite well, which is that trying to change an election outcome is not illegal. Um, even if Trump was saying privately that he wasn't sure if they had the evidence for fraud, investigating it, asking for recounts, asking for votes to be thrown away if they're illegitimate and double check to make sure that the ones that are counted are legitimate is not a crime. That's a normal part of the political process. So you could get Trump and his alleged co-conspirators if they did illegal things in pursuit of that goal, but the goal itself is not illegal. Um, and they haven't shown any, any evidence in this Georgia indictment that in the process of trying to change the outcome that they did anything illegal. So I don't know how this is going to go. I mean, even just reading the indictment, there's so many ridiculous pieces of so-called evidence that they use here. Um, Act 22, for example, says, on or about the third day of December 2020, Donald John Trump caused to be tweeted from the Twitter account at real Donald Trump, quote, Georgia hearings now on One America News. Amazing. They describe this as an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, a tweet telling people to watch One America News. I just, I don't see how this is going to go anywhere. I think this DA is probably trying to make some political bones out of this. She's already fundraised a bunch of money for her reelection campaign. And I think that's what this is all about. I mean, we also see that the former lieutenant governor of Georgia is on CNN or MSNBC, kind of interchangeable to me, to be honest, talking about how Trump blew up the party in Georgia and how this is essentially personal for him. And I, that's what I think it is. It's personal for a lot of people in Georgia, but that doesn't mean it's criminal. Yeah, I think Donald Trump's trial hinges on this one fact, and it's whether or not he genuinely believed that he won in Georgia and that the election was rigged. Because I think there's a world where the prosecutors will be able to prove that in private, he knew that he lost, he knew that the integrity of the election was there and that he lost fair and square in Georgia and was pushing this idea that he, he may have uh, lost due to fraud and pushing that idea, which he knew was a lie willingly to cast doubt on the electoral process. It's not a crime to, to lie though. the strength of our democracy. I think if they prove that, which they can, then he becomes guilty of, you know, pushing this idea of election fraud on people to, to make them not believe in our democracy anymore. That's something that's kind of dangerous for our country. So I think if they can prove that he didn't genuinely believe it's fraud, they have a pretty strong case there. And I think that's why he's focusing so much of his time on, on his speeches on that. I think you could make the case that it's immoral to say things that you don't believe are true and get other people to believe them, but I'd be hard-pressed to say that that's criminal. In that case, we'd probably have to put every politician in jail. I mean, I, I do believe it is 
it is criminal to make people believe that our electoral process isn't sound when it is. I think it's, that's something that's dangerous for the country when you're in that high of a public office, when you have that much public attention. That's why he's he's been indicted uh, is because that that is criminal. And so I think the, there's a reason that there are exceptions to the free speech you know, right in the United States. Uh, the exception that you can't say things that are slanderous of other people, no hate speech, no spreading violence. And I think there is a case to be made in D.C. for Donald Trump that he did have a hand in inspiring the January 6th insurrection and riot and that he did rile people up and encourage them to go to the Capitol on that day. So we'll see how these things play out. But I think there's a reason that these things are criminal and that there's an exception in the free speech law. And it's because they're dangerous, not just for our country, but for the people who died on January 6th. I think we'd be uh, hard pressed to find an objective standard of what speech is dangerous when it comes to challenging elections, considering that Democrats like Stacey Abrams refuse to concede in her own case in Georgia. And yet somehow she hasn't been indicted. We'll be back with more rising after this. Maui's emergency management chief, Herman Andaya, resigned Thursday, a day after defending not enacting the emergency sirens at the monstrous wildfires approached Maui. Here's Andaya's response when pressed by reporters Wednesday. Had we sounded the siren that night, we're afraid that people would have gone Malka. And if that was the case, then they would have gone into the fire. And so that is the reason why our protocol has been to use WEA and EAS. By the way, I should also note that there are no sirens, Malka, or on the mountainside where the fire was spreading down. So even if we sounded the siren, it would not have saved those people on the, on the mountainside. Maui's mayor said Thursday the embattled emergency head stepped down because of health reasons. Meanwhile, the state's attorney general, Anne E. Lopez, announced yesterday that she will task a third-party private organization to investigate how local authorities deployed response to the fires, which have now has killed 111 people. In a statement, she wrote, quote, Having a third party conduct the review will ensure accountability and transparency and reassure the people of Hawaii that all of the facts will be uncovered. The information collected will be used to assess the performance and emergency preparedness as we are constantly looking for ways to improve. Um, unfortunately, I don't think a third party investigation is going to make the people who lost family members, lost friends, and obviously the people who are no longer with us feel much better about the outcome of this situation. And the fact that this emergency chief is supposedly resigning for health reasons is an obvious lie. I don't think anybody believes that. And not to mention when he was trying to answer that question about failing to, uh, to push the emergency alarm system, he had a bureaucrat step in and try to basically CYA his answer, um, which is another a despicable act, in my opinion, because this guy should have had to answer to the Hawaiian people. He should have had to explain his utter failure to save these lives. He should have explained why he really believes that pushing that alarm wouldn't have saved anyone. Um, and instead, we had somebody trying to run cover for him and prevent him from being held accountable. And now he just gets to walk off into the sunset after resigning for these supposed health reasons. This entire uh, scenario is utterly ridiculous. 
Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's very clear that it's not health reasons as the cause for him resigning. It's very clear that it's because he didn't alert folks that the fires were coming. And for them to say that we broadcast on the news and we we tweeted about it, there were news and internet broadcasts that the fires were coming, that's not enough for people who don't have the TV on or aren't looking at their phone. The sirens are there for a reason and it's because they are necessary to warn people of imminent danger. There were people who were jumping into the ocean to avoid the wildfires. There's a reason the sirens are there and it's so people can run away from the fires so that they are not burned or trapped in their home and then burned. This is now the, the deadliest wildfire in history. And there are people who lost their lives, family members, they, they've lost their town, they've lost their homes. And the idea that $700 in compensation for the people in Maui is enough is ridiculous and absurd. And it's not just a problem in Maui. There are people who are members of indigenous communities in Canada, and they are victims of the wildfires burning their homes and they're losing their lives and family members as well. But in the specific case of Maui, if you're someone who is responsible for that emergency response and you botched it as badly as they did, take accountability. That's the least you can do. It is so unsatisfying for the people who have lost family members and their homes, their history, their entire town, for you to say, I'm resigning for health reasons. That is such a cop-out, and it's so sad that an elected official that uh, made a mistake that cost so many lives uh, is just saying, you know, I'm resigning for health reasons. The fact that they think they can get away with that and that will be okay and satisfactory is absolutely ridiculous. Exactly. And this guy, Herman Andaya, is not the only one to blame. It's whoever appointed him to this position. It probably goes all the way up to the governor of Hawaii because this guy was clearly not qualified for the position. Um, according to Honolulu Civil Beat, this guy had no expertise in emergency management. He was trained in political science and law. He had no formal education in disaster preparedness or response and had no, never held a full-time job related to emergency management in his entire career. His only qualification, apparently, was being chief of staff to the mayor at the time, Alan Arakawa. And he managed to beat out 40 other applicants for this job back in 2017. So to think that he, would, despite having no experience in emergency preparedness, might be the most qualified candidate is ludicrous. Obviously, there was some kind of political favor system going on here. And to your point about the sirens, Jess, Hawaiians know what those sirens mean. They're prepared to react in response to those sirens. I remember back in 2016, 2017, when there were concerns that North Korea was going to launch a missile strike at Hawaii when Trump was in office, there were so many news segments where they had CNN reporters on the ground at these emergency siren locations, at these bunkers, explaining what the protocol would be if a missile were in fact launched. And that was five plus years ago that they were talking about this emergency response system. And then to have an actual emergency and not use it is unforgivable. Yeah, absolutely unforgivable. And the fact that you have Josh Green also defending the, the failure to sound the sirens, also ridiculous. Josh Green, I think, is culpable, and that's why he's defending the failure of Indiah to sound the sirens. It sounds like Indiah and his office were responsible for this. So him stepping down, claiming it's for health reasons, obviously not the case. But the fact that you have other people that defended the decision before he stepped down 
suggest that we really need to look into all of the government in Maui and all of their role. And so I hope the investigation actually is thorough because this should be prevented in the future, not just to the extent of them alerting people of the emergency, but pre preparing for the emergency, making sure that the land in Hawaii is not sold to people who are using non-native crops that dry out the land that put everyone living on Maui at risk. It's absolutely ridiculous that we got into this scenario in the first place where a wildfire could get this bad on an island like Maui when we have forests in California that are burning coming towards towns and people are able to escape in time. They're able to manage the fire so that we don't lose as many lives as we did in Maui. It suggests that there's something very wrong going on that requires more preparedness than just sounding the sirens minutes before the fires end up getting to these towns where there's a lot of people there that haven't gotten the alert through the internet or, or through the television. There's a lot of preparedness, not just the sirens, that they failed to do. And it, it makes sense a lot that Indaya was not someone that was well prepared for this role in the first place, that his background is political science and being chief of staff to the mayor, that that prepares you to be the head or the chief of emergency response in a place like Maui, where there's the potential of tsunamis, wildfires, hurricanes. It's not a place where you know you can appoint anyone to that role. You need someone who's prepared and familiar with the topography and familiar of familiar with the threats and familiar with the alert and the response that's necessary to save people's lives in a scenario like this. It's just absurd that we have people that are appointed to these positions when they should honestly run for them. Yes, and then there's also this water official, Kaleo Manuel. He refused to release water resources to landowners so that they could protect their homes from the fact that this dry grass was invading so much of the area and was susceptible to wildfires. His college degree is in, quote-unquote, Hawaiian studies, whatever that means, and he has said that water should be revered rather than used and should only be shared after true conversations about equity. Well, clearly there was equity with this wildfire that spared nobody um, out, outside of sheer dumb luck from some homes that didn't burn down. Um, so clearly there's a problem in the bureaucratic management of the land in Hawaii, of the resources in Hawaii, and there's a problem with people who are unqualified for their positions being appointed, which is why, again, I think that this probably is going to go much higher up in terms of what this third-party investigation might possibly uh, reveal. We also know that Hawaiian Electric knew that its power lines posed a hazard to the region. Um, they spent practically nothing on wildfire prevention um, while spending tons of money on quote-unquote renewable energy. Renewable energy, I think, is a worthy goal, especially when it's pursued by private companies. But if you're also not going to make sure that your, uh, that your company is preventing the potential destruction of the land on which you're operating, that's a serious problem as well. Yeah, there are a lot of folks who made decisions economically speaking when it comes to who is the land being sold to? Who's getting a loan for the land to be a farmer on the island of Maui? Is it someone who's familiar with the land who's going to do a good job cultivating it? Or is, someone, or is it someone who's gonna return uh, a high you know, profit over a 10-year period to the bank that gives them a loan so they feel safe about that short-term profit and that investment 
Uh, or are they going to actually think about what's good for the island of Hawaii, what's good in the long term economically for the state? Probably not. We need to change a lot of things about how we run our economy, not just in Hawaii, on the mainland as well. When we consider what is sustainable economically, we need to be thinking about more than 10 or 15 year returns on investment. We need to be thinking a little bit deeper about what's good for the economy in the long run, especially when we have this risk of dry land and wildfires. We need to also be thinking not just what a good return on investment is when it comes to tourism in a place like Hawaii, what's actually good for the economy, for the people living in Hawaii, not just the people who come and visit for a few days or a week out of the year. And so the reliance on tourism is something that actually created a lot of droughts across not just Maui, but Hawaii as a whole to the point where people who live there year round are saying, don't come here. We don't have enough water to go around. That's an entire mismanagement of the local economy on Maui as an island. It's not just about the short term response. It's about much longer policy failures and just poor economic decision making. I know that we'll be watching as well to see what comes of President Joe Biden's visit to Maui. He previously offered a rather trite no comment when he was caught vacationing um, at Rehoboth Beach and was asked about the Maui wildfires. And I know that rightfully a lot of people were really angry about the fact that he couldn't even muster up just a few words of sympathy. Now the $700 payment, it feels like a slap in the face. So I'm very curious to see how he's going to answer for that when he actually goes to visit. More rising after this. The government absolutely lied to us. The yes. 9-11 Commission lied. The FBI lied. There's a federal case of victims on 9-11 that want accountability. I don't think they would have come for me if this was false. What do we know about Hunter Biden's dealings? What do we know about the truth of what happened on January 6th? What do we know about that Nashville shooter manifesto? Yes, we can handle the truth. Just give me the hard truth. It feels like we're on the cusp of chaos. Oh, there's something going on. I, yeah. mean, I think we're like in a 1776 moment in this country. We are driving Russia further into China's arms as we arm Ukraine, further strengthening what I see as the single greatest military threat. We are dependent on a tiny island nation off the southeast coast of China for our entire modern way of life. I will not send our sons and daughters to die over somebody else's nationalistic dispute. End the Ukraine war, reduce our economic dependence on China, weaken the Russia-China alliance. I'm not sure what is controversial about any of that. They're a dumber group than, <laughs> than the foreign policy Republicans. Where are we now? There's a deeper void and vacuum that we have to fill with an affirmative alternative vision of our own. And that takes courage. 2024 Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy appeared on Tucker Carlson's Twitter show this week, where they talked all things regarding his 2024 campaign, the Russia-Ukraine war, LGBTQ plus rights, and more. The pair teed off their conversation by discussing 9-11, including Ramaswamy's suggestion that the American government was not fully forthcoming about, about what happened on that day. That the government absolutely lied to us. Yeah. The 9-11 commission lied. The FBI lied. Now. Am I, is this a core point of my campaign? No, it's not. There's this guy, Al Bayoumi. <laughs> now, re re rewind back to 9-11 and the pre-9-11 day. Think of how ludicrous this story is. A 42-year-old graduate student, and there's nothing wrong with being 42 and going back to school. My dad went back to school much later in life, but he's a 42-year-old graduate student who receives the two terrorists 
two of the terrorists who flew planes into buildings in the United States of America not that long later, receives them at the airport in LA, takes them to his house, spends lots of time with them, integrates them into the community. But the account for what he said happened was he met them randomly at the airport. That doesn't make much sense on the face. Just kind of it. happened to be at LAX and no, exactly. You guys, and, from and, Saudi. Hey, you know, you, you you look like uh, you look like guys we might get along with, and then suddenly become fast friends at the airport so much so that he takes them up. So it's a little suspicious. But hey, the 9/11 Commission and the FBI looked into it, and at the time they said his account is accurate. Yeah, it sounds legit. It sounds super legit, right? Now there was some hanging out at LAX. You now these guys came from Saudi Arabia. Does this guy who received them have any ties to Saudi Arabia? That's where they landed. But now, 20 years later, in 2021 and 2022, the FBI quietly declassifies documents. And they have to, 20 years later is the deadline. That suggests that, oh, wait a minute. They did know actually that this guy was a Saudi intelligence operative. Here's also Ramaswamy on donations to Ukraine amidst their fight against Russia. We are driving Russia further into China's arms as we arm Ukraine, further strengthening what I see as the single greatest military threat that the United States certainly has faced since World War II. You could make a case that the United States has ever faced if you actually look at where this could be going. And yet we are actually the ones responsible for driving that Russia-China military alliance. And so one of my advantages is that I am not, some people say, well, you don't have foreign policy experience. And I'll say, yes, I don't have foreign policy experience. And that may actually be an advantage in bringing a rational American. So you're not responsible for the war in Iraq. Yeah, that's no. a bad thing. Yeah, well, well I, I, I think we could debate whether it's a bad thing or not. But if you, if you break the car, you don't turn over the keys to the guy no. who broke it. <laughs> no. That's what I would say. And so, you know, I think that we are on our way to Ukraine turning into another Iraq or another Vietnam all over again. Except this time, I think it could be worse because there's nuclear weapons at issue. I think that's a very good point on both of their parts, talking about the foreign policy establishment. I definitely don't want a candidate that has any perspective other than an anti-interventionist perspective, and that's literally no one who's been a member of the foreign policy establishment. So I think that's a really good point there. Uh, Ramaswamy brings a perspective, I think, to our politics that's similar to RFK and that they're both independent thinkers and they're willing to talk about issues that we see these polished establishment candidates be absolutely terrified to touch with a 10-foot pole. And I think that's a strength he has. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, being willing to admit that the government lied about some of the aspects of the findings from the 9-11 Commission is a very brave thing to do. He's already taken a lot of heat from it. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence basically accused him of being in grade school when the attacks happened, mentioning that he was on Capitol Hill which again doesn't uh, give us any insight as to whether or not he knows the full truth of the matter or has been willing to talk about it. And it just um, is a, a pattern among our government, uh, particularly in the intelligence community, to not give us the full information of what has happened in regards to these various attacks, whether it's mass shootings like the Las Vegas uh, terrorist attack that happened at a country concert. We still apparently don't have a motive for that 
that individual. There's been a lot of speculation that he was perhaps affiliated with the intelligence community, perhaps unofficially. We also have not received, as Vivek mentions in that interview, the manifesto from the Nashville school shooter who seemingly targeted a Christian school due to their LGBTQ plus identity. And we uh, have been getting changing stories on the Saudi involvement in 9-11. We've been getting changing stories on the JFK assassination. And so I don't think it's unreasonable at all to just point out that when you have a pattern of behavior from a certain group, um, particularly one that's affiliated with the government, that is already very untruthful, that they probably didn't tell us the full story about the deadliest terror attack in the United States history. And it's not pro-Taliban uh, pro or pro-Al-Qaeda or pro-anyone besides the United States to demand that the American people get the full truth of what happened. I think the extent to which the intelligence community has decided things of great consequence when it comes to U.S. foreign policy is the greatest threat to our democracy. The fact that we have candidates running simply on declassifying information uh, about what the intelligence community has been up to, about terrorist attacks against the United States, that that can be a key tenant of someone's platform and that sets you so far apart from the other candidates is kind of shocking. And it really describes the extent to which we have the bureaucracy, the alphabet soup of the intelligence community in DC. And it's really not just when it comes to intelligence or the military, it's really every aspect of American governance, but there's such a clear divide between those we democratically elect to serve and those that are career people who are either appointed or apply for the positions they're in and can make decisions that people we elect to serve in government uh, go against what those we elect to serve would like uh, for them to do. When we have the Pentagon withholding information that members of Congress want to release to the public and the people making those decisions at the Pentagon never had to run for public office or either appointed to those positions or came up through the ranks, that's really sad when we think about the state of our democracy. And so to have candidates like Ramaswamy, like RFK Jr., like Marion Williamson, and like Cornell West that are challenging the establishment in the typical way of doing things, that's great. But it's also a problem when the establishment has the keys to the primary process. When they make decisions that are not regulated by typical election laws, that makes me really scared for the fate of these candidates that are extremely popular, that are challenging what Donald Trump called the swamp when he ran, which is still certainly not drained and still making a lot of decisions on behalf of the United States and our foreign policy and the people, that they never had to run to earn the votes to serve. And do they serve us? I think that's a question as well. But it means a lot that we have candidates that are running and making this central in their campaign, and we only have a couple establishment candidates running this time around. Yeah, I mean, to your point about this divide between the bureaucrats in government and the people who were elected by Americans, it reminds me of during the Trump administration when we had one of these government officials write an op-ed for the New York Times describing what Trump had called the deep state, this effort to subvert so many of his policy positions that he was elected to carry out because these unelected bureaucrats had decided that these were not good for the country. They had single-handedly made that decision 
on behalf of voters instead of listening to the will of the people. And on the thread of the intelligence community lying to us repeatedly, we just found out, thanks to documents released from uh, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan last week, that FBI Director Christopher Wray lied about the targeting of Catholic churches by the intelligence community. He claimed in testimony to Congress that this was the result of a rogue field office in Richmond, Virginia that had released a memo um, comparing faithful Catholics to domestic extremists and potential terrorists. And it turned out that there were at least two other FBI field offices that collaborated on that memo. So time and time again, the establishment and the bureaucrats who uphold it have repeatedly shown us that they are willing to do anything possible to retain their power and subvert the will of the people who are trying to get their elected officials to carry out certain policies that they would think would help them in their lives. I think when we consider how the, not the foreign policy establishment, but the CIA directly, uh, and the covert operations that they've carried out on behalf of the United States that have led to anti-American sentiment all across the globe. When we think about the overthrow of Mossadegh, the coup of a democratically elected leader in Iran, and the way the CIA handpicked the Shah and put them back in power is absolutely absurd. That's why Iran has anti-American sentiments. It's not that they hate our democracy and they hate our freedom, they directly hate us because our resources and military might has been used to destabilize their country and their region. When we think about you know, the CIA's operations in arming and training the Mujahideen who then ultimately became the Taliban, when we think about our support for Osama bin Laden calling him a freedom fighter, and then ultimately the terrorist attacks on behalf of Al-Qaeda on the United States, and then we can, sit, can consider things at home when we think about the Unabomber being the victim of experiments of the CIA on Harvard's campus when he was a student there, and then him ultimately developing some anti-American sentiments as well. Just how much violence can be traced to the CIA and the intelligence community and the covert operations they've carried out despite never running for office to represent us, despite not being accountable to the public aside from these 20 years out declassified documents so they tell us what they've done. This is absurd, this can't go on. And any candidate running for the highest office in the United States that is not calling that out can't be taken seriously at this point. Like to ignore it is to ignore the reality of the consequences of those policies, just allowing this national security establishment to run foreign policy on behalf of our country despite never being elected in a supposed democracy. It's just ridiculous. Every candidate should be calling that out. And to not talk about that and to run for highest for the highest public office today is absurd. Like it should be laughable that candidates like Pence and Joe Biden aren't saying these things. Increasingly, we see in our country that the people who are being attacked the most from the establishment are the people who are telling the most truth. And it's sad that it is that way. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. And so to see this reflexive reaction to Ramaswamy's comments, he also took a lot of heat um, for his stance on funding of Israel. Um, he mentioned that he would like Israel to become independent from American money in the next 10 years or so. And I don't know why that's so controversial. Um, Israel, of course, is a great ally to the United States. 
Um, but I would think that we would hope for the success of any of our allies that they can function without billions of dollars in American aid, without American weapons. They should be self-sufficient. That should be a goal that we're working towards. And it seems like people are trying to paint him as anti-Semitic now simply because he said that he doesn't want to reflexively give so much foreign aid to other countries, including Israel. Uh, it's, it's just more of the same from the establishment. And it's why it's so important to have candidates like Ramaswamy, like Trump, like RFK Jr., because the establishment gets into this hive mind where they come up with these harebrained schemes. There's nobody that is willing to challenge them or that comes from a different perspective because they all go to these elite institutions and go through the same, uh, the same, um, you know, think tanks, the same nonprofits before ending up in government. And they all just come to the same conclusions. And no matter how wrongheaded and how many horrible consequences come out of the decisions that they make, they're still insistent that they're the experts, that they're right, that everybody else who pushes back on them needs to be destroyed. That's what they're trying to do to Ramaswamy right now. I think it's it's not uh, something inflammatory for Ramaswamy to say that we're at a 1776 moment in our country, which he said in that interview with Tucker, Tucker Carlson. And I think what he means by that is what a lot of populist candidates mean when they say we're at a flux point in our country. And it's that the people recognize that the economy and the, the military, the foreign policy establishment, just our government as a whole at the federal and state level, uh, and it includes Congress, it's not just the bureaucrats that are responsible for this, but that the country's been run in a direction that is beneficial for the elites, for the political class, for Wall Street and the investors, for people who have capital and make more money off of that capital, not people who get up and work every single day, uh, that the country's been run for their benefit, not for the benefit of the everyday people. And that was really uh, the intent, if you read a lot of the Federalist Papers, if you read a lot of the writings of the Founding Fathers, was this idea of a government run by and for the people. Did they get things wrong? Did they they write structures into our government that resulted in what we have now, which is a government that greatly benefits the elites? Yes, but we're at a moment where I think a lot of people are ready for us to structurally change things in our government so that there's more power and decision-making on behalf of the people and put into the hands of the people. And if that means greater concentrated power to, to local offices and to local economies in the United States, great, so be it. But if things don't change and there aren't candidates that are talking about change, I don't think we're at a place where they can win. And it's ironic that this message is coming from Vivek Ramaswamy, who has a ton of money and is only able to run because he has millions of dollars to fund his campaign. The message coming from someone that the system benefits, I think goes to show how far gone we are as a country when it comes to the functioning of our economy and our democracy. We'll be back, more rising after this. It was almost two years ago that the United States completely withdrew from Afghanistan, ending the 20-year-long war. Some see this pullout as an event that sparked utter chaos in the world. A new book titled Kabul, The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End, which contains eyewitness accounts from service members who participated in rescue efforts and stories from Americans and Afghan allies, makes the case that Joe Biden's Afghanistan retreat has spurred an incredibly dangerous new era. 
Authors of Kabul, Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan, join us now to discuss their reporting on what they found truly happened in Afghanistan's capital city. Thank you so much for joining us to break this down. I really want to start uh, with just, you know, the president, he says he's Irish. He often reminds us of this. This could be why his exit strategy was essentially an Irish goodbye in Afghanistan. But I think we all saw the aftermath immediately of the decision to pull out so quickly. Jerry, can you just say quickly what we weren't told, what wasn't reported on in those moments when we were watching folks flood planes on tarmacs and things of that nature? Yeah, well, look, a big underreported thing for all of us. And by the way, James and I are both Irish, so the Irish uh, excuse doesn't fly with us. Um, uh, you know, one big thing that we uncovered in our book is how the Abbey Gate attack by this ISIS-K terrorist likely did not have to happen. A, a big part of that is President Biden's decision to abandon Bagram Air Base, a strategic air base very close to Kabul. This base would have been a much safer, smarter place to run an evacuation from. Um, it would have given us the ability potentially to uh, continue to keep the Taliban at bay. Certainly the Taliban never would have been able to take Bagram, but we also may, be, may have been able to keep them from taking Kabul. Um, on top of that, this terrorist uh, who conducted the attack uh, on Abbey Gate that killed 13 Americans, he was in prison at Bagram Air Base, and he was in prison when we left the base and was freed by the Taliban on August 15th, 2021. So if we had simply maintained Bagram, it would have been smart, not just for our, our safe evacuation, but the terrorist who conducted the terrorist attack that killed 13 Americans, if we had held on to Bagram, Bagram he would have just been sitting behind bars. If That's I can add to that very briefly, Please. I think uh, one additional um, thing that we didn't know when we first started writing the book, we thought we had an idea, but we didn't even know a third of it, uh, was just what the individual service members on the ground had to uh, had to deal with and how heroically they acted. Um, yeah, a, a term that comes up a whole lot when we speak with them uh, is moral injury. And that is because due to the, the administration's just object failure to plan, they were faced with impossible situations where if they had to turn somebody away because they didn't meet the criteria, uh, desperate Afghans would grab the, the barrels of their weapons and try and pull them up to their heads and say, just shoot me now because then the Taliban is going to kill me anyway. Um, they had to uh, you know, endure babies, you know, witnessing babies get trampled at the gates. Um, you know, women throwing themselves on the razor wire to try and, uh, you know, basically prompt a rescue so they wouldn't have to go back through the Taliban checkpoints and be brutalized all over again. It, it was just, it was a horror show of, of the uh, of the worst variety. And um, the, the administration's repeated descriptions of the Taliban as, quote, businesslike and professional uh, just couldn't have been further from the truth. And it's an insult to the, the men and women who served. 
First of all, thank you both so much for writing this book because we haven't been told the real story of what happened. And as we saw from the testimony of Gold Star families last week, um, there there's a lot of resentment and right, rightful anger at the Biden administration for their role in the deaths of those 13 Americans. Um, in the book, you write that the service members who were on the ground at Bagram were blindsided by the decision to close that base. From your understanding and your reporting, who told Biden that he should leave Bagram? And what was the intel that supported that decision, if there was, was any? Uh, nobody told Joe Biden that he should abandon Bagram. In fact, everybody told him that he shouldn't. Uh, repeatedly, military leaders were, were urging him um, to, to keep Bagram open. And, uh, you know, to, to underscore the stupidity of that decision, the Obama administration, uh, when Joe Biden was vice president, um, actually conducted a feasibility analysis of what an evacuation would look like and whether it could be run out of Hamid Kazai International Airport in Kabul um, if they closed Bagram. And they concluded that, that it was a non-starter to try and do any evacuation uh, without Bagram. Uh, but uh, Joe Biden wanted to get out as fast as possible. And he wanted to be able to say they were, uh, you know, under a thousand service members left in the country. And you can't hold Bagram with fewer than a few thousand service members. So uh, it had to go. Um, and we all witnessed the consequences of President Biden's decision. And all I would add to that is uh, I, I currently work on the House Foreign Affairs Committee um, helping investigate this debacle. And I, I'm just speaking like in my personal capacity as an author, but we had the command sergeant major, Jake Smith, who was tasked with shutting down Bagram. Um, we had him testify and he said that the State Department came to visit Bagram in early 2021. Uh, they came to visit from the embassy and, and this command sergeant major told them in no uncertain terms that doing an evacuation through Kabul would be an idiotic idea and that it had to be done through Bagram. And he says that the State Department, these State Department folks agreed with him um, <laughs> because everybody knew that doing an evacuation through Kabul would be very dangerous. And of course, it became exponentially dangerous uh, once the Taliban was controlling the entire country and once we, the United States, had to rely on the Taliban, our enemy of 20 years, to provide security outside the airport. And the reason that we were put in that position was because of President Biden ignoring the facts on the ground and ignoring what everyone around him was telling him. I want to actually turn us to the short-term policymaking we often find in the United States leading to disasters similar to this. There's a decision to fund and arm the Mujahideen during essentially the, the Cold War era. And this was a project that bin Laden was on our side with. And we saw the Mujahideen uh, develop into the, the modern known Taliban. How has this short-term interventionist thinking led the United States to create terrorist groups that ultimately have anti-American sentiments and become a threat to us? And we destabilize regions as well and only achieve very short-term foreign policy goals. How much can we credit that history and short-term thinking to a lot of the disaster in Kabul and Afghanistan today? Well, let me let me jump on that. So. I 
I think that Osama bin Laden actually likes to overstate the role that he played um, in uh, the uh, efforts fighting the Soviets when they ran Afghanistan. But it's absolutely true that the U.S. you know funded these uh, these Mujahideen groups, and I think where a lot of the problem comes from is that after uh, the Soviet Union left, uh, the United States took its eye off the ball on Afghanistan, and the Taliban was able to uh, uh, to able to take over. And what I would point out about the Taliban is the Taliban uh, you know gave safe harbor to Al Qaeda for many many years before the September 11th attacks. I mean, Al-Qaeda was hitting the United States in, in our embassies in Africa, um, bombed the USS Cole, and then carried out the 9-11 attacks. Um, and, you know, throughout it, the Taliban was harboring them. And even when we were getting ready to invade, the Taliban refused to hand uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda members over. And the Taliban was willing to fight a 20-year war and willing to be cast out into the mountains of Afghanistan for 20 years rather than break that alliance. Um, and, you know, Al-Qaeda is still there today, and some members of the Taliban government are actually members of Al-Qaeda. So I think that an even bigger problem than our short-sightedness is our, our total inability to understand and our refusal, perhaps, to understand what the Taliban wanted and what Afghanistan was like. And there were, of course, 20 years of mistakes during this war and 20 years of not understanding Afghanistan. But that culminated, I think, in President Biden's uh, decision making, because he just did not understand that if he did what he did, the Taliban would take over in rapid fashion and tens of thousands of Afghan allies and, and thousands of Americans would be left behind. What I really appreciate about y'all's book is that it doesn't just talk about the leadership failures, which were massive and hugely consequential, but it also points out the stories of heroism that took place in the leadership gap that was there to be filled. Um, for example, you talk about the private veterans groups who stepped in to help evacuate the Afghan allies who were left behind by the State Department. I'd love to hear you both talk a little bit more about some of the other unsung heroes from this withdrawal. Yeah, I, to uh, to to you know build off of that, the the private veteran groups were just nothing short of heroic, and you know what a lot of people don't know is is many of them emptied their four hundred one ks to be able to keep the promises that the Biden administration broke. Um, but then uh, you know it, the. The greatest heroes were the the enlisted um, Marines and soldiers manning the gates and the, the junior officers who were, um, you know, leading them. It, we talked uh, to, to a whole number of them. And we heard stories about um, them jumping into the crowds to rescue pregnant women who were about to be trampled, even when they knew there was a pending suicide attack. Uh, they, they, they were trying to pull people through all the way up until the last moments. In fact, when the bomb went off, um, some of them were, were pushing their way through the crowds to, uh, you know, basically try to, uh, you know, rescue as many last people as they could, or, or you know, kind of standing um, alongside of the crowds to try and try and spot people. Is probably a better way to put it. But they uh, just until the to a very 
to a man and to a woman, they were they were nothing short of heroic. It, it was the everyday American people at their very best, and the American government at its very worst. I'm wondering if if either of you have anything to say about the dichotomy that we often hear in media of either we have these endless wars or we have this result where it's a, a really quick pullout by the US military in a place like Afghanistan. Is there you know, a happy medium where we don't have these endless wars and we have a safe pullout from places like Afghanistan where we have active bases and active military? Yeah. One, uh thing that we emphasize in the prologue to Kabul is that Americans, um, including Afghanistan veterans, um, have all manners of opinions about whether or not we should have stayed in Afghanistan or whether we should have just completely pulled out. And no matter which side of that debate you fall on, uh, one thing that we outline in our book uh, in vivid detail is that no matter which opinion you take, one thing is perfectly clear, things did not have to end the way that they did uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and the president likes to say that, you know, this was a success. Uh, yesterday, uh, you know, uh, Press Secretary Kirby uh, for the uh, you know Department of Defense tried to claim that the bombing was inevitable and, and that just nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, I'll let Jerry kind of, you know, um, tail off of that a little bit, if you'd like, Jerry. Yeah. So, I mean, John Kirby claiming that, uh, you know, the, the CENTCOM investigation showed that there was uh, that this uh, Abbey Gate suicide attack was not preventable. Well, something important to point out is that the CENTCOM investigation did not interview Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, who has testified to Congress that he was receiving intelligence detailed descriptions about the impending suicide attack and a detailed description of the suicide bomber. And that he believed, he and his Marine sniper team believed that they had identified the likely suicide bomber in the crowd on August 26th before the bomb went off. And he asked permission from his commanding officer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Whited, to take the shot. And Tyler says that the commanding officer told him that, well, he didn't have the, that authority to give permission to take the shot, and he didn't know who did. And, you know, Tyler says that the suicide bomber then disappeared into the crowd, and obviously the bomb went off. And in the course of writing our book, we also found buried in these Pentagon documents uh, sworn testimony from some other officers. One officer, uh, one officer said that the U.S. intelligence but we uh, knew that uh, ISIS-K was staging in a hotel about a mile and a half away from Kabul airport, and that uh, Major General Chris Donahue asked the Taliban to assault that location, but that the Taliban never did. Another uh, officer uh, said that a U.S. strike uh, was requested against uh, an ISIS-K location in Afghanistan ahead of the uh, Abbey Gate bombing. Uh, but that the uh, strike was deemed infeasible um, by uh, Major General Chris Donahue and by Rear Admiral Peter Vaisley due to a negative response from the Taliban. So there's a lot of testimony um, from people involved in the evacuation and from uh, service members and intelligence officers on the ground who said that this attack, uh, they were receiving a lot of intelligence about it coming and that there may have been uh, real opportunities to hit ISIS-K ahead of the attack. Uh, 
and potentially, um, according to uh, Tyler Vargas Andrews, potentially even a, an opportunity to take the bomber himself out before the bomb went off. And that's not even including the fact that if we simply had maintained Bagram, um, this uh, suicide bomber, Abdul Rahman Aligari, who was freed by the Taliban from that prison, if we had simply maintained that base, that uh, bomber would have been stuck behind bars rather than threatening and ultimately killing Americans and Afghan civilians. Unfortunately, we're, we're completely out of time. I'm sorry to cut you off, but um, there's so many more harrowing stories in this book that I think people need to read to understand the full disastrous withdrawal that took place. Jerry Dunleavy, James Hassan, thank you both for writing it. Again, it's called Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought to the end. We'll be back with more Rising after this. After a little bit over a year of marriage, Britney Spears and husband Sam Asghari are calling it quits, according to TMZ. Asghari was the one who filed for divorce on Wednesday, citing irreconcilable differences. The news broke after multiple outlets had already reported the pair split. Hours after the news broke, the pop star posted a bizarre picture on Instagram with the caption reading, quote, buying a horse soon, so many options, it's kind of hard. The pair married last year after Britney was released from a 13-year-long conservatorship. Uh, in my understanding, Jessica, is that the conservatorship prevented them from getting married and also prevented Britney from having children. She claimed in court that she was forced to go on birth control so that she would not get pregnant. Um, but I think it's clear at this point, and, and honestly should have been clear at the time that these documentaries were going around about the nature of the conservatorship, that while the conservatorship in the state that it was in was obviously unfair and unjust for Britney, she was not a fully well person. Um, her Instagram uh, posts and captions to me seemed quite obviously of someone who was struggling um, in, some, in some way. She didn't sound like she did just a few years ago. She didn't sound like she did before she had her infamous 2008 breakdown. And now her captions and her, uh, the things that she posts on social media have only become more bizarre after she's been released from the conservatorship. And the breakdown of this marriage is perhaps just another sign that things are going south. Um, I believe Sam Asghari both accused Brittany of cheating and also accused her of attacking him in his sleep. Um, so Brittany, I don't think is well, and somebody should step in and, and try to help. Yeah, I think stepping in and trying to help is the right way forward. It appears that since the genesis of the whole Britney Spears uh, mental health crisis, there's been this approach of a lot of criticism of her by the media, by her family, lots of uh, the judicial system getting involved in a direction that didn't seem to help improve her mental health whatsoever. But I think that was a sign of the times. We've seen a lot of advancements in how we think of mental health problems as a part of wanting people to be healthy, seeing it as a part of health care rather than this is a crazy person and we're not going to try and understand it and we're going to try and isolate them. There's been a lot of progress uh, since Brittany shaved her head and was seen in the media. I think it's a chicken or the egg situation. Was this a scenario where her early fame and her family's control over her fame drove her to that mental state? Or is it a scenario where this was Britney's mental health? It was pretty bad and her family stepped in and tried to take control. We'll never really know, I think, the answer to that. 
And I think the reason people are so curious about it is because it's a fascinating case study for us to just learn about how much mental health has changed in our country over time and how we should handle family members that are struggling with a mental health crisis. Anyone looking at Brittany's Instagram, I think, would call any of her Instagram posts weird. It's not unique that she posted this photo on the horse. Given the circumstances of the divorce, maybe it's weird, but it's just like any of her other posts with this long rambling caption and the kind of a photo that no other celebrity would post, that their PR firms would just melt if they saw what Britney was posting on Instagram, which I think suggests she doesn't have the support around her that she needs. Uh, and maybe her husband as well wasn't supportive of her either. I question anyone who was close to Britney who is letting her post what she's been posting on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know there's also been reports that her sons don't want to see her anymore. There was apparently a rift in that relationship when she first started uh, posting after the end of her conservatorship because she was posting a lot of nude images and that embarrassed her sons. And I guess when they met with her, it didn't go well. And, and they also feel that she is not in her best state of mind. Um, on the question of whether her mental health issues were caused by her child's stardom or were simply, um, I guess, naturally occurring, for lack of a better term, I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. We see this often with child stars, particularly young women who are sexualized from a very young age. They have their finances controlled by their parents, yet otherwise are free to basically do whatever they want and behave as if they're adults, even though they're not. And it's really damaging for children to lose that innocence so soon and to be involved in these adult situations where they don't have the normal boundaries that a child growing up should have. Um, people like Demi Lovato have struggled with mental health issues and substance abuse. People like Bella Thorne. I mean, so many of the kids that come out of Nickelodeon and Disney Channel or who have stardom from a young age end up going off the rails when they reach young adulthood because they simply don't know how to manage this massive change in their lives, in their age, in their bodies, because they've already been uh, turned into adults by the media and by the industry and by the people who work with them. So Britney Spears, to me, is another sad example of this trend. I think we need to do more to protect children who go into the, the media industry and make sure that they're uh, not being uh, um, turned into adults before they, they're developmentally ready to do that. Yeah, it's interesting in the country, we have a lot of strong sentiments about child labor laws, but don't extend those sentiments to child stars. We quite like seeing toddlers and young kids on television playing that role in a lot of family shows we've grown to love, but without really thinking too deeply the consequences of a child being on screen and on a set and having makeup put on their face at such a young age and being dressed in all kinds of outfits and getting that kind of attention, but just spending their waking hours laboring instead of learning about the world that they live in and going to school and socializing. The consequences are, are lifelong, apparently. And I think Britney Spears is just an, an example of that, sadly. But I think we'd all like to see a happy ending for Britney, especially people of my generation that grew up listening to her music, looking up to her as a person and having this kind of shock. I remember still like seeing Britney Spears bald, but her going through a divorce now, is it an, a, a normal adult thing? 
or is it a part of this larger problem we see with people who are thrust into fame, having a very public relationship and everyone paying very close attention to it, that ultimately leading to its demise? I think her posting that photo on a horse talking about potentially buying a horse I don't know. Is it weird given that they just filed for divorce? Because it seems to me that a lot of the time, by the time folks file, especially if they're of celebrity status, they've already sorted it out with their lawyers and likely PR firms as well. So I don't know if we're going to see more interesting stuff come out of Britney Spears' life. I think we'd all like to see her happy if that means with her family and with her husband or without. The wedding was attended by a lot of the celebrity friends that we saw her grow up with, which I think was was really good to see. And the extent to which the conservatorship changed her life, I think we're all curious about. But is it good for her mental health to, you know, divulge that for everyone and do a documentary on Netflix about it? No, I think a lot of us just want to see her fine and well and happy and want to see people leave Britney alone. Uh, so I hope the divorce isn't messy and I hope things are fine for Britney, but I still think people are going to extract all kinds of lessons about what it means for fame, child stardom and mental health. Yeah, I definitely feel that same sadness um, that you have in regards to seeing Britney struggle so much. The first cassette tape that I ever owned was the Baby One More Time album, and I would listen to it on repeat. I was a huge fan of hers um, up until adulthood when she basically stopped making music. And so... This is, it's hard. I mean, a, a lot of her fans want to see her recover. They want to see her doing shows again, doing music, because it seems like that's what she really loves. But in her current state, it doesn't seem that she has the capacity to work at that high level anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into being an entertainer, especially in America, where now uh, with influencers, we expect to know every detail of people's lives. And it's concerning to think about what that means for that person. There are people who I think are good entertainers, who are funny, who make artistic points, who enjoy genuinely entertaining other people. And then I think there's this, this new cohort of, of influencers who want attention for the sake of having attention. And I think it's produced by the same phenomena that produced the obsession with Britney Spears. We become so obsessed with the people we see on screen all of the time. And human beings are naturally nosy and want to know about the goings on of other people's lives just in their town and in their community. So, of course, we project that same sentiment on the people we see on screen all of the time, only we don't actually know them. We don't know anything about them. And I think it would be healthier if we got to a place in society where the people that we get entertainment from don't also become the subject of our strange parasocial obsessions. But I think social media has made that much worse and our insight into what Britney Spears is doing all the time has made that much worse for her as well. Absolutely. We can sort of trace that line from paparazzi culture in the 2000s to our new obsession with following people on social media. It seems like social media has kind of replaced the tabloid magazines where we think that these entertainers have power over their own stories and their own lives because they're sharing it willingly with us. But are they only doing that to fill this void that has been left from the paparazzi culture? We'll be back with more Rising after this. Ron DeSantis' debate strategy memos have been revealed, and they address his notorious awkwardness on the campaign trail. One section suggests that he invoke a personal anecdote story about family, kids, Casey, 
showing emotion. It also reads, there are four basic must do's. One of the memos urges DeSantis, whom the document refers to as GRD. One, attack Joe Biden and the media three to five times. Two, state GRD's positive vision two to three times. Three, hammer Vivek Ramaswamy in a response. And four, defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump has maintained the lead in a new Emerson College polling survey of New Hampshire voters, taking 49% of the vote. Where did the other contenders come in? Well, the poll shows Chris Christie with 9%, Ron DeSantis at 8, Tim Scott with 6, Doug Burgum and Nikki Haley each at 4, Vivek Ramaswamy with 3%, Perry Johnson at 2, Mike Pence and Will Hurd each at 1%, and 13% of voters undecided. I don't know if I buy this poll, Jessica. Every other New Hampshire poll that I've seen has Vivek Ramaswamy in second place, and I find it quite surprising that Doug Burgum, who nobody even knows who he is, nobody knows who Perry Johnson is, somehow polling above uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. But... Um, it just seems like this poll is an outlier based on everything else I've seen, um, but I guess we'll, we'll see what happens after this upcoming debate as well. On this question of uh, Governor Ron DeSantis's debate prep, this is really interesting that all of this got leaked. Um, basically what happened here is that Never Back Down PAC uh, commissioned this report on how DeSantis should approach his strategy heading into the debate. And because super PACs are barred from officially coordinating with directly with candidates, what usually happens is these PACs will post their strategy and their various documents for the candidate, polling, what have you, on secretive parts of, of the internet where only the candidate and the campaign know to look. But apparently what happened here is that somebody from the New York Times was tipped off to where this debate strategy was going to be posted on Axiom Strategy's website. They found it before it was taken down and they were able to download the entire document themselves. So there's nothing out of the ordinary necessarily in how they went about trying to get this strategy over to Ron DeSantis. But clearly they either have a leaker within Never Back Down Pack or Axiom Strategies or they wanted the media to see this for some reason. Yeah, I think it goes to show how unlikable DeSantis has become as a politician because it's not the first time his debate prep has been leaked. We have videos of him and Matt Gates talking about what the strategy was for the debates during his gubernatorial race with uh, advice that be likable, be written at the top of his sheet that he has in front of him during the debates, as if that was something that he could forget and need to be reminded of. But if you see the videos of him on the campaign trail, all of his gaffes and antisocial moments, it's pretty obvious that he does actually need to be reminded to be likable. But I think it goes to show that even people from within the DeSantis camp aren't particularly jazzed about him as a person or as a candidate for president whether it's someone that wants a different candidate to get the lead in the primary race for the Republicans, or it's just someone who's been around DeSantis that doesn't like him anymore because of how they've been treated on the campaign. It's like Christmas morning for me when stuff like this is leaked, but the Emerson polling shows that he's not really a front runner anymore. I think you're right to question that Emerson polling 
it does make sense that Ramaswamy would be a front runner in a state like New Hampshire, where there's a lot of independent voters, a lot of libertarians that have political views that tend towards Ramaswamy's. But nevertheless, it looks like DeSantis isn't doing too well. And the explanation for the polling at Emerson could just be that they concentrated this to folks that always participate in Republican primary uh, you know, elections the way that they decide what the population of concern is for this polling varies. They could just be looking at really reliable Republican primary voters. So I think this could just be the result of the population they decided to poll. But lots of things are changing in the Republican primary race. But what's not changing is that Trump is a very clear front runner, which makes it more interesting that the suggested strategy is to kind of hit at Trump, even though he's not going to be, you know, present at those debates. So I think that that's probably not a strategy unique to Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I want to go back to your point about how this could have come from somebody who is uh, no longer a fan of Governor DeSantis because of the way the campaign is going, because the strategy laid out in this document is so bad that one of the only possible explanations for it even seeing the light of day is that this is a form of self-sabotage. Um, the idea that DeSantis can avoid attacking Trump when Trump has already labeled him to sanctimonious and gone after him aggressively to the point that he's cratering in the polls is just going to make DeSantis appear weak. Um, you can't just go back and pretend that you're not feuding with the former president at this point in time um, and then redirect your focus on Vivek Ramaswamy with these canned lines calling him Vivek the fake and trying to attack his record that way. Um, not to mention that, meanwhile, if DeSantis is taking it easy on Trump in the debate, he still has all of his surrogates on social media constantly sparring with Trump supporters and Trump campaign officials to the point that a lot of those online battles have gotten particularly nasty. And we also saw reporting um, this past week from both The Spectator and Puck News, or excuse me, Politico, that there was a bar fight, not physical, but still a bar fight between Jeff Rowe and Aaron Perrine, who are both officials with Never Back Down. Again, Jeff Rowe runs Axiom Strategies, the website that this debate strategy was uh, was posted on. Axiom Strategies is advising Never Back Down Pack. They apparently saw a Kerry Lake uh, staffer who was wearing a hat that said Trump is the Iowa back-to-back -back champ 2016 and 2020. And the hats were supposed to refer to the fact that Trump won the state in the general election both times. But Jeff Rowe and Aaron Perini apparently didn't understand the hat. They thought it was about the primary. And they started belligerently yelling at this Carrie Lake staffer saying that Trump lost in 2016 to Ted Cruz. Now, not so coincidentally, Jeff Rowe was the campaign manager for Ted Cruz back in 2016. So this is getting very, very messy. I know that I love a little bit of campaign consultant drama, um, and this has it in spades. Um, the fact that this, again, this really bad debate strategy leaked um, seems to me like it could be the result of some kind of self-sabotage. And even if it's not, DeSantis can't use any of the material from this now, because if he goes on stage and says Vivek the fake after we all got to read this document in preparation, he's going to come across as even more of a phony than many Americans already feel that he is. 
I'm not sure who the audience now will be for these primary debates. Donald Trump won't be there. You have a bunch of candidates that are likely planning to attack Donald Trump in his absence. You have DeSantis running interference for Donald Trump only if Chris Christie attacks him, suggesting that Chris Christie is the only substantive threat they see or the only establishment candidate that they should be punching back at. It's just fascinating to think that this might be a Republican primary debate that is just watched by the politically engaged class, not even necessarily Republican primary voters. I think there's a, a huge base of voters that aren't interested in tuning in because they plan on casting their ballots for Donald Trump. Also because it seems that all of their uh, strategies are tailor-made for the first primary for New Hampshire. Uh, they might not think that folks in Iowa are planning on tuning in, but to have Vivek Ramaswamy, who's leading in polling in New Hampshire, be the main target, I think tells you a lot about how these candidates campaign. And it's they focus on each primary state one at a time and adjust their political messaging according to the political sentiments that are popular in the state where the next primary or set of primaries is, which is so inauthentic. Just when we think about what our political process should be, your platform and messaging should be consistent across the states, not tailor-made for the audience. But that's really what happens when we have our political industrial complex extend to the state that it's at right now. I'm just curious who the audience for this debate is going to be. It seems to me that it's just entertainment for the political class at this point. Yeah, it definitely feels that way, especially when we saw these candidates try to make their way around the Iowa State Fair last week. Um, they were, of course, eating their corn dogs and riding on their bumper cars and trying to prove that they're normal people. It backfired for quite a few of them. I know DeSantis was accused of shutting down a bumper car ride so that his family could go on it. Um, they defended themselves, claiming that the ride was not shut down, but the photographs of the event show that him and his family were the only ones on it, so I don't know what was going on there. And I believe Tim Scott went to the fair on a Tuesday when no one really goes because everybody goes on the weekend when they're off of work. Um, so just some really inauthentic stuff going on, as you said, um, to watch their strategies change as the primary process goes on is always uh, pretty fascinating from a consultancy perspective. Unfortunately, not so much fun for an American voter. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Actor Bradley Cooper is facing backlash for his appearance while portraying composer Leonard Bernstein in upcoming Netflix film, Maestro. The movie trailer shows Cooper wearing a fake nose, which social media users have said perpetuates anti-Semitic tropes and some have called it, quote, Jew face. The Hill reports, the organization Stop Anti-Semitism tweeted Hollywood cast Bradley Cooper, a non-Jew, to play Jewish le legend Leonard Bernstein and stuck a disgusting, exaggerated Jew nose on him, all while saying no to Jake Gyllenhaal, an actually Jewish man who has dreamt of playing Bernstein for decades. Sickening. Let's take a look at some of the first teaser trailer for the film. Itching to move? No, no. Good. Actually, at all. I'm thinking of a number. <laughs> 
Leonard Bernstein's children have responded to the backlash Cooper is facing, saying it, quote, happens to be true that their father had a nice big nose and Bradley chose to use makeup to amplify his resemblance. And we're perfectly fine with that. I think that should be the end of the discussion, Jessica. If the family doesn't have a problem with it, they don't feel it's anti-Semitic. They just feel like Bradley Cooper is doing what he needs to do to properly blend into this role. Then that should be enough. I'm so tired of people getting offended on other people's behalf when the so-called victim in this scenario doesn't have an issue. It just seems like people online are constantly rage baiting, looking for something to be angry about. And they love to use these divisive wedge issues like race and gender in order to get themselves clicks and attention and pretend that they're doing good for the world because they don't actually have real lives in which they do things for other people. They just go online and try to get brownie points from literal strangers on the internet. It's interesting to think about the the children's involvement in this. Are they getting some kind of payment from Netflix as a result of the film being made in his father's likeness and resemblance or their father's likeness and resemblance? I'm not sure. Is this something that affects more than just the family and affects the Jewish community as a whole? Sure. If you are Jewish and this offends you, I think your feelings are valid. I think, you know, the children can't speak for the entirety of the Jewish community. I do think it's an odd choice on probably not Bradley Cooper's part, but probably who does makeup and who's the director of the film to put a, a, a nose on Bradley Cooper that's larger than it appears Bernstein's nose was in real life. I don't know if that increases his ability to play the role of someone by making the nose not only bigger than Bradley Cooper's natural nose is, but bigger than Bernstein's is. Uh, I don't know what goes into hair and makeup or what, but it seems to me that they made the nose bigger than Bernstein's, which is just an odd decision, in my opinion, if you're the director of the film. Uh, so, yeah, folks finding this to be anti-Semitic, you know, if you're Jewish and you've been bullied for having a large nose, uh, if this upsets you because during the Holocaust, uh, it was a directive to find people with larger noses and they were Jewish. Uh, and this evokes the kind of hard feelings about that history and how it affects your family. I totally get it. Like you, you have every right to be upset about this. Uh, is it something that I think is worth the, the media's attention and time for the larger historical conversation beyond amplifying the voices that are upset about this and having that very real conversation? should people who are Jewish or members of a certain ethnic community only be played by those from that community? I think that's a conversation that's that's worth having in media, actually. Uh, and I'm not even sure where I land on it, because there have been a lot of people that have played roles in Italian mob movies that have done really good jobs that I'm sure did not grow up in an Italian-American family. Am I, as an Italian-American, terribly offended by this? No. Do I think an Italian-American probably could have done a better job? Yes, but people in Hollywood are motivated by who is a famous actor and who can draw that audience as well. Yeah, and also sometimes somebody is just better suited to play other things associated with the role that don't necessarily have to do with their background or their ethnicity. I mean, there's obviously places where the line should be drawn. I don't think it's appropriate for a white actor to don blackface and play a black person. But there's a lot of cases where things are sort of more ambiguous and it's part of acting, part of the profession 
to be able to play somebody who doesn't necessarily have the same background as you. And if we take that artistic license out of movies, out of TV shows, I think we're going to be worse off for it. I also am not sure we have the best direct comparison there of Bradley Cooper with the prosthetic nose on and Leonard Bernstein because I've seen it from a couple of different angles where it really doesn't look as exaggerated as that particular photo did and it does look closer to Leonard Bernstein's likeness. Um, but we'll see what happens when the movie comes out. I believe that Bradley Cooper actually has a role in producing the movie as well. So my guess is he did go to the family to get permission to play the role and to have this prosthetic put on his face. And I think that's the respectful, responsible thing to do when you're portraying a real life person. I have way less sympathy for any offense that's taken when these situations happen with literal fictionalized characters. And there's this really unfortunate trend um, in some left-wing communities online where they actually accuse people of queer baiting by taking parts as like for example straight actors taking parts that are LGBTQ plus uh, community members. And they've actually outed some people unintentionally by doing that. There was an actor um, who was a little bit more small time. He's sort of a B or C list actor who was in a television show and he was playing a bisexual or a, a gay character. And everyone believed that he was straight. And it turned out that he was actually bisexual, but he wasn't ready to go public with that information yet. And so he was essentially bullied by these online fans of the show or the movie to out himself before he was ready. And so I think we need to be very careful in thinking about the consequences of berating actors for doing their job when they may not necessarily be a member of the community that they're supposed to be representing in this fictionalized version of, of these stories. Yeah, I think the Hollywood strike happening right now, the SAG-AFTRA writer's strike as well, when you have all of these actors saying, we have witnessed decisions made on behalf of art that we really believe in and we participate in producing, decisions made that cost the art from being as good as it could possibly be simply because the studio wanted to either cut costs or do the thing that would earn the most money. I think having Bradley Cooper cast in this role, was he the best person to play this role or was he selected? because he's a really big name. Was he selected because they thought the, the movie would bring in as much money as possible? And I think that very real problem of directors picking actors simply because they already have a following and are so famous rather than picking the person who's best suited for the role is getting in the way of really good movies and shows from being made. And there's a billion other problems caused by them putting profit above making the best piece of of art possible, but this is certainly one of them. And I think a, a more interesting part of the conversation uh, than just the people who are not members of the Jewish community who are outraged by Bradley Cooper wearing the prosthetic nose when the family say it's okay. I think probably only the Jewish community can be upset about that, but I think everybody who consumes art can be upset about decisions being made so that the studio and directors make as much money as possible at the expense of the best piece of entertainment being made. And so I think it's a good time for the actors and writers to be on strike. I'm curious what they think about this production as a whole, especially that the production uh, is going on despite the strike happening as well. Yeah, this is a little bit of a different scenario because Bradley Cooper is in fact the director of the movie and he also wrote the screenplay with Josh Singer. 
Um, it's produced by Bradley Cooper, Martin Scorsese, and Steven Spielberg. So I don't think in this case Bradley Cooper was chosen just because he's a big name, but because he literally created the movie by himself. That does it for us today on Rising. Thank you so much for tuning in. Jessica, I can't wait to be back with you this time next week. Yes, back again next Friday. Everyone be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available wherever you listen. Bye, y'all.